are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded via Zoom on the 10th of May, 2023, at the Centre d'études maghrébines at Tunis. In this podcast, Ignacio Villalon, the Keorg Carnegie Social Sciences Fellow, interviews Liz Matsushita, visiting assistant professor of history and humanities at Reed College, presenting a podcast entitled The Politics of Musicology in the Maghreb. How you doing, Liz? Good, how are you? Good, good. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Liz Matsushita. I am currently a visiting professor at Reed College in history and the humanities, specializing in Middle East North African history. Before that, I was at Claremont McKenna College in California and finished my PhD in history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign in 2021. My research looks at colonial musicology in North Africa, or up to this point has looked at colonial musicology, and I'm more interested now in also looking at the post-colonial and state-building aspects of musicology as well. My research has mostly been in Morocco and Tunisia, although I look more broadly at North Africa in the colonial period. And I'm really interested in the ways that music and musicology intersect with the construction of race, colonial and imperial control, and also state building and nation building projects. So that's been my research thus far. I'm also going in some new directions with sound studies and border studies have been particularly interesting to me. So jumping in now to your research, which institutions and actors were engaged in studying, recording, and disseminating North African music during the colonial era? And who were their audiences? So a lot of the institutional actors I look at are in Morocco, Particularly, there was a colonial office called the Service des Arts Indigènes, Service of Native Arts, which was a wing under the broader direction of public instruction of the French protectorate government. And they were very heavily involved in studying kind of what they called Moroccan or indigenous music throughout the colonial period, especially in the interwar era. So, of course, the Moroccan protectorate lasts from 1912 to 1956, but the interwar era, roughly 1920 to 1939, saw kind of this proliferation of musicological scholarship coming out of North Africa and especially Morocco. So I was really interested in that from the beginning of my research, just figuring out who these actors were, why they were so interested in Moroccan music, and what were the political dimensions of the work they were doing. So a lot of the work done by the Service des Arts and de Gênes was spearheaded by two men in particular. One was Prosper Ricard, who was the head of the Service des Arts and de Gênes for its inaugural years. He was definitely interested in music, but also arts more broadly. He was a kind of native arts revivalist and preservationist and was very interested in preserving Moroccan traditional arts and handicrafts and music as it was in its most authentic form. And in the process, made a lot of interventions into what he thought it was. And then one of his employees, Alexis Chotin, was the other major actor. He was a musicologist. His background was actually in music theory, and he had studied in Algeria. And he became kind of the most prolific, prominent musicologist of Moroccan music in the colonial period. And he produced multiple texts, launched multiple events, worked with the radio. His name was just kind of all over when I started doing research on colonial Morocco. So 
that really interested in me, like how big of an influence just one person could have on defining what Moroccan music was and like what the different genres were and what was worth preserving and what was authentic, etc. So those were some of the big actors, at least in Morocco. But of course, there were others in uh, Tunisia and Algeria that were roughly equivalent kinds of colonial offices that also produced musical scholarship. There was also some international interest. Musicologists coming from Europe were interested in studying and defining North African music in this period as well. We see this in some of the international conferences that are held in the colonial period in North Africa. The most famous is the Cairo Congress of Arab Music in 1932, which elicited the participation of Alexis Chotin or Prosper Ricard and these guys coming from the Maghreb. But then a few years later, there's the Fez Congress of Moroccan Music in 1939, which also brought together a bunch of musicologists from both North Africa and Europe. So yeah, it was actually just a really vibrant kind of world in the colonial period. And Moroccan and North African music were this subject of a lot of interest from multiple actors, but ultimately many of them were aligned in some way with the colonial edifice, with colonial institutions. So that interested me too. Like, how is that shaping the knowledge that was produced about music? So some of these musicologists, what sort of background would they have had back in the metropole or back in Europe? What would they think about European music, about their own national context? And what sort of categories would they bring over or change in the colonies? Hmm. Yeah, they came from pretty wide variety of backgrounds, but most of them had definitely studied kind of traditional Western music in the Western Academy. In this period in Europe, there are some changes to the fields of musicology. So there's traditional musicology in which you would study art music, which is broadly defined as Western classical music. And then there's comparative musicology, which was a kind of new field originating in Germany that was more interested in looking at different world musics within a single frame. And some of the pioneers of that field were actually some of the musicologists who were involved at the Cairo Congress of Arab Music. So comparative musicology is a new kind of direction that is often referred to as the precursor to ethnomusicology, as we now know it. So there were these scholars who were becoming more interested in studying non-Western musics, but they didn't necessarily have some kind of institutional training in it because that wasn't really a thing so much in Europe at the time. So, for example, if we see some of the musicologists who end up going to these conferences, I was interested to see they had such a wide variety of backgrounds. Some of them had written scholarship about East Asian music or about African music or about folk music from the countryside in France or Britain. So they were kind of loosely interested in non-traditional, non-Western musics, but they weren't necessarily experts in the musics of North Africa or Arab music. And I think in the process, like you pointed out, they did bring a lot of their own preconceptions and categories from Western art music, like the idea that there are certain types of music that are art or classical, that are more codified elite types of music. And this roughly got transposed onto the classical Arab or Andalusi genres in North Africa. And then on the other hand, there are musics that are more folk or popular, that are more associated with potentially more primitive lifestyles, more primitive peoples, but that are interesting in a different way. And those were roughly transposed onto Berber Amazigh music in North Africa. So one of the things that happens 
I think in the colonial period is that these genres in North Africa get more heavily codified and dichotomized and kind of reified into things that they weren't necessarily before, partly based on these kind of misreadings by European musicologists. And who would they have listened to or recorded? I imagine a wide range of musicians. Can you give us maybe an example of a musician or a group of musicians who might have come into contact with these European musicologists? Yeah, in terms of some of the more quote-unquote classical genres, the more learned musicians from urban centers, there were Andalusi orchestras in Fez and in Tlemcen and Algiers and all these major kind of urban centers in North Africa where that music had both long been practiced, but also as Jonathan Glasser writes about in his book, there was you know also a revival movement happening within North Africa at the time around Andalusi music. So some of the interlocutors for these European musicologists would have been these very specialized groups, kind of urban Andalusi orchestras. And you see these groups playing at some of the colonial events and becoming the representation of Andalusi music for colonial scholarship and publications. But then in terms of other groups, in terms of Amazigh music, for example, there would be more ethnographic study conducted in Amazigh-speaking areas which I argue is also part of this larger, quote-unquote, Berber studies phenomenon that was happening at the time in colonial scholarship, where they were very, very interested in defining and understanding Berber culture and society. So their interlocutors there were a bit more disparate and dispersed. But yeah, I think also over this time period, especially over the interwar period in Morocco, for example, you see some of the same performers appear at multiple colonial events, and they've clearly like formed a relationship with the colonial regime. So they become the standard bearers of certain genres. So for example, one of the groups that appears at almost all of the colonial events in Morocco and also in Paris during the Paris Colonial Exposition in 1931 is Andalusia, a group formed by two Algerians, Mustafa Aboura and Ben Smail. And they formed this group to preserve and promote traditional Andalusian music, but it also took on certain modern elements. It was a larger orchestra than was traditional to have. They added some new instruments. They wrote down a lot of their repertoire. So this group is kind of like a more modernized version of an Andalusi orchestra, and they become very close to the colonial regime, and they perform at all these events. So there was kind of a range of different musicians that participated in these initiatives, but I would say at the same time, it was a fairly limited group of people. So it seems to me that these projects of recording or documenting music, both in Europe and in the colonies, this idea of authenticity is sometimes sort of fraught, it seems to me. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this idea of preserving culture in a moment of massive change. Yeah, it's definitely very fraught. And I think that is a tension that comes up again and again when you're looking at this scholarship. And it's also something that is discussed to some extent in musicology and ethnomusicology, like how do you capture a musical object? How do you define a musical culture without intervening on it in some way? And that's something I'm curious about and think about a lot, even in terms of like contemporary scholarship. But yeah, in the colonial period, for sure, it was especially fraught uh, for obvious reasons. So I think there was definitely this European concept that one could accurately capture 
the essence of another culture, whether that be through music or art or anthropology. And that is then expressed in all these different musical initiatives. And I think it comes out in interesting ways because, of course, there are then debates about what is more authentic, what is the real representation. Two examples come to mind in terms of how that can be a problem. First is at the Cairo Congress of Arab Music, one of the major debates that took place was whether the piano could be introduced into Arab music, specifically because as the piano is typically tuned in the West, it does not capture all the range of notes that are used in Arab scales. And alongside that, there was also a debate about the use of scales, about whether Arab music should be fixed and standardized around an even-tempered scale, meaning the notes would be absolutely fixed at certain pitches as opposed to being more flexible as they often are in practice. And the interesting thing was, and A.J. Rossi has written about this in his article on the Cairo Congress, the interesting thing was that it was the European contingent, particularly the Germans, who were really interested in preserving Arab music as it was and keeping out these potentially corrupting, modernizing influences like the piano or like these alterations to the scale, while more of the Arab delegates, particularly the Egyptians, were more pro-making these changes and also Wadi Sabra, the Lebanese delegate, wrote about this a lot and was interested in, in modernizing Arab music to an extent. So I think that brings up a central tension here is that modernization, whatever that means, is to some extent a change that I don't want to say naturally happens, but it's something that is happening. And it is happening in Arab music at this time, regardless of colonial interventions. And on the flip side, this kind of more European take was that, no, it should be frozen in time and it shouldn't change. And that's the only way we can keep it authentic. So that, I think, demonstrates that even just an effort to kind of document or catalog, not even to actually make changes to the music, there's going to be a natural tendency to try to freeze it in time and to categorize certain musical techniques or musical technologies as inherently corrupting and inauthentic. And so that is a tension that comes up definitely throughout this period. It also comes up when you look at notation, like transcription of music. Much of the traditional repertoire, especially like the Andalusian repertoire in North Africa, for example, was not written down often. It was handed down orally from musician to musician. And so that makes the question arise, of whether just the act of writing down the music kind of freezes it into something that is less authentic. So all these questions are floating around at this time. And I think particularly when Europeans get involved, there is a tendency to want to prevent any changes from happening to music, even though change naturally happens. And I think that also comes up when you look at musical recordings, when the first wax cylinders and then and then records become another way of kind of freezing a piece of music in time. So what was the place of North Africa in European musicologists' vision of their own music, of European music? It seems like there were some different views on that subject in what I've seen. You know, on the one hand, there are those who were interested in the music, but really saw it as fundamentally alien in some way, as just a completely separate civilization, very much kind of in this Orientalist vein of it coming from a completely different source in a different world. And that I think that also contains some of the fascination with it for them. But there were also some who did see a direct relationship between 
Arab music and Western music, although I would say they were in the minority. One was Henry Farmer, who was the British delegate at the Cairo Congress. And he was also echoed by Wadia Sabra, the Lebanese musicologist that I mentioned before, who was also at the Congress. But they argued that essentially Arab music had formed the basis for the development of European music, kind of in the same broad meta-narrative that Europeans often had about how ancient Greek knowledge had been lost to Europe during the Dark Ages, and then the Islamic world had preserved this knowledge and experienced its golden age in the medieval period, and then that that knowledge was then passed back to Europe as it rose. And this is like the very, very broad meta-narrative that gets, you know, thrown around even today, I think. But in that vein, they argued that many of the concepts in European music that were held to be so fundamentally Western were actually developed in Arab and Islamic countries in the medieval period. So I think one of the things that they talk about or that Wadi Sabra talks about is he mentions instruments, he mentions the guitar and how the oud came into Al-Andalus and developed into the lute, which then later became the guitar in Europe. But he also talks about the harmony of a third which I found to be pretty kind of subversive in writing back against European musicological narratives, because he essentially says that harmony is something that is often presumed not to exist in, in traditional Arab music, like two notes being played at the same time. It's more of a melodic music. But according to Wadi Asabra, the fact that the third, which is very prevalent in European harmony, was actually first found to be consonant in Arab music, more sequentially than being played at the same time, but he makes this whole case about it and has a really interesting kind of very musically scientific tracts about this subject. And he also was echoing or agreeing with, and he also corresponded with Henry Farmer on this topic. So there were some Europeans who believed that Arab music had actually preceded and potentially was even in that case somewhat superior to Western art music. And there was also this broader discourse about how Arab music has this intense kind of subtlety and refinement that I think was another source of the fascination for European musicologists. But broadly, I would say there was more of a separation between the two musical histories entirely, as if they were just not related. And you see that also in these debates about how can Arab music develop along the same lines as European music, but obviously not get corrupted by it at the same time. They go down different paths entirely. And I would say also in terms of North Africa in particular, the French colonial project, there is a back and forth between concepts of assimilation and modernizing you know, North African subjects and what was called association. This colonial policy that developed later in the 19th century that essentially decided against trying to assimilate North Africans, especially in Morocco, and was just trying to kind of preserve their traditional culture and help them develop along a completely separate path. So I think you see that same kind of attitude developing in how they approach the music as seeing it as just something completely separate and that needed to be helped to develop, but not to change fundamentally or modernize. I just had the thought, I don't know if musicologists in the colonial era, if they would have had a certain kind of politics, if they would have had a kind of presumably some sort of discourse about tolerance or open-mindedness or openness to other cultures. Was that the case mm -hmm. at all? Yeah, I would say so for sure. This is what I find particularly interesting, especially in a kind of meta way as a scholar myself studying an area that I'm not from. You know, I think it's something to always be thinking about. I don't think there's a way to completely be innocent of the political projects that you're 
embedded in when you do that and same today as in the colonial era. But yeah, I think that many of these people did pride themselves on being tolerant as being really interested in and very enthusiastic about North African and Arab culture and having a very positive view of them at the same time that they were kind of proliferating these colonial messages and creating these colonial categories. So one thing that made me think of is there were a lot of anthropologists coming from France at this time. They weren't strictly musicologists, but they did collect musical material on their ethnographic missions, and that was part of their broader program. And so they did end up writing about music. So I have looked at their writings as well. But there was a whole kind of coterie of anthropologists coming out of Paris at this time, going to North Africa. Many of them were associated with the Musée de l'Homme, the Museum of Man in, in Paris, the kind of premier anthropological museum in France at the time. And they were all quite, I guess you could call liberal. Many of them got involved in the resistance movement during World War II in Vichy, France, and were generally kind of characterized in their writings as very broad-minded, very interested in forwarding a kind of Boazian view of anthropology, of cultural relativism, and trying to move away from the old hierarchical very biological, physiological differences kind of anthropology that started in the 19th century. And so they would go and do these months-long ethnographic missions. There's one pair in particular, many of them are women as well, Germaine Tillion and Therese Riviere, who spent time in the Aras Mountains in Algeria in, I think, the 1930s, early 1930s, and wrote about all aspects of their culture, but also their music. And what interested me about these anthropologists, these women anthropologists from the Musée de Lome in particular, was that they were very, what could be termed anti-racist in some of their work. I think Alice Conklin has characterized it as such in her book on the Musée de Lome. So anti-racist in the sense that they were, yeah, against the old kind of biological racism and very against this idea even that there were biological racial categories, which was somewhat revolutionary at the time. At the same time, I see so much reproduction of the same racial discourse in their work about North African races. And this is one of the big things that I've been really interested in in the practice of colonial musicology is the production of race. And even if that is trying to move away from old biological hierarchical notions of race, it's still codifying racial categories in North Africa in a way that those racial categories didn't necessarily exist before. And they do that through music and through culture and through talking about the inherent qualities of these peoples, the way their music sounds, the way that they use rhythm, just the way that they are the most pure representations of their race if you go out to these particular parts of the mountains in Algeria as opposed to the cities. So I guess going to your question, I think there was a tension between the fact that many of these scholars and actors were broadly liberal or tolerant, but also I think we're still reproducing colonial and racial discourse just in a different way. I'm curious now, what would they have listened to? What would have made something indicative of it belonging to a people? Would it sometimes be rhythm? Would it sometimes be melody? Would it sometimes be polyphony? Or was it consistently a few things? I think with Amazigh music in particular, it was often heavily associated with rhythm. I think the interesting thing too, and this goes back to the practice of musicology in general, is that music is such a broad, capacious category. So it's not so much that the musics aren't different, because they are, but when you put them in a box. So what Alexis Chotin would do in his musicological scholarship, which he wrote a couple 
kind of compendiums of Moroccan music in the 1930s. It would always be divided into two sections, an Arab section and a Berber section. So there'd be a section on Arab music, there'd be a section on Berber music. And what I try to show is that it wasn't that all of the knowledge or all the technical information that was contained within those was necessarily wrong. It's more that by presenting the information in that way, you are creating or reproducing this narrative about race and about identity. So Amazigh music, it would always be associated with rhythm. It would be usually used in kind of uh, village ritual contexts. It would involve hand clapping and circle dances and things like this. And so it was just a fundamentally different kind of cultural practice than, say, an Andalusi orchestra performing in a cafe or in a city. So that kind of equivalence was what really racialized it, I think. And then within that, there were certain traits or tropes that got associated with each of those music. So yeah, the fact that Amazigh music was fundamentally rhythmic, that it was pentatonic, meaning there are just five tones, which was also a common characteristic of musics around the world, often non-Western, that they didn't really have much melody, but what they had was they existed within a range of fewer modes than in Arab music. While Arab music and Andalusi music would be associated more with like very refined, sophisticated melodies, highly melodic, less emphasis on rhythm, a wider range of modes that were kind of codified through their music theory. And then neither music was presumed to really have any polyphony or harmony. And that's where then the distinction was between Western art music, which was more predicated on that. No, that's very interesting. And I'm curious as to what you just said, in fact, at the beginning of your answer regarding music being a capacious phenomenon, mm. right? Like a category. I wonder if you could maybe clarify it a little bit. And especially, is this a category error that's going on sort of? Because I think the thing that happens when you have music is a musicologist comes and tells you that this, this, this is there. And you listen to it and sure enough, it's there, right? And so how how is this colonial? And you know, you, you listen and well, what's wrong with it, right? So what would, if you were, say, a Berber in the interwar era, when you did what Europeans called music, would you have called it music? Maybe you would have called it entirely different things, and it's only Europeans coming down and making this equivalent. No, that's a good question. I can't say for certain as to what terms would have been used within Amazigh communities about the practice. At the very least, I think that like reducing something to the pure category of music would have maybe been less of a thing because it's embedded in a broader kind of cultural practice. So like pure music or even the European practice of sitting in a concert hall and just listening to music, that would not really be translatable. But I think a big part of it is categorization. That isn't to say that there weren't also racializing or biased interpretations of the knowledge itself happening in the writing as well. Like I think some of the language used to describe the music, certain kinds of descriptors or associations within the actual knowledge being produced could also be fundamentally problematic as well, despite much of it being accurately rendered in terms of the technical aspects. But yeah, I think the categorization, like you said, is a big part of why this was a major intervention into North African society and culture and racializations. And I've thought a lot about music as a category 
And I mean, this is something that musicologists have also talked about a lot, but I think at the very least, we can't approach music as just a given concept because as you indicated, there's different cultural approaches to what music is around the world. And it's very difficult to put these incredibly disparate musical practices into the same frame and then not compare them and not see a lack in one or see one as less developed or less sophisticated somehow. I think also hear about Kofi Agawu's essay on the invention of African rhythm, which I think has been salient for me in thinking about Amazigh music, in which he talks about the trope of rhythm in African music and representations of African music and how it's emphasized to the exclusion of all other aspects of the music. And that is just a kind of a misreading of this really diverse set of musics that use rhythm in different ways. But it's kind of seeing African music, again, from a Western lens, like, oh, it has a lot of rhythm and that's going to be the only thing we talk about. So that happens with Amazigh music as well. But yeah, I think music also gets created as a category in opposition to like noise or things that are just incomprehensible. And I think there's also a history, especially in colonial or non-Western situations, of designating what counts as music and what doesn't or what counts as something legitimate or worth preserving or worth documenting or recording or studying and what doesn't. And so that has also had a political effect wherever that's happened. And I'm really interested in this category of noise as the negative or the flip side of music, because you also do see that in North African contexts, particularly when Europeans or visitors are trying to apprehend the soundscape of a North African city. And sometimes the music that they hear to them strikes them as just noisy or almost like animalistic so that kind of categorization on a much broader level is also really interesting. So moving on now to the post-colonial independence era, what institutional efforts did North African nations make to highlight or create national forms of music? Did they make any major breaks with sort of colonial musicology? And did they reproduce certain concepts? Hmm. There were a lot of efforts, both during the colonial period and then surviving into the post-colonial period as well, and new initiatives coming up in the post-colonial period. But I think Tunisia is a really interesting example for this because there has been what seems like quite a concerted effort to create a national musical culture in Tunisia since independence. Uh, one of the first institutions to do this was actually founded in the colonial period in 1934, the Rashidiya Institute, which still exists in Tunis today, although I think it's largely more of a music school now. But in, in its origins, it was founded by a group of Tunisian elites who were interested in preserving and promoting Malouf, the Tunisian version of Andalusi music. And so they had their own orchestra, they would give concerts, they also produced scholarship. And that institute survived from the colonial period into the national period as a kind of promoter of Tunisian national musical culture. National radio has been a major vehicle for promoting national music's conservatories. In Tunisia, they also had a project immediately post-independence called Patrimoine Musical Tunisian, Tunisian Musical Heritage, that I think was at least partly uh, authored by Salah El-Mahdi, who's a Tunisian musicologist. And that was kind of a compendium of musical knowledge about Tunisian music done by Tunisians in the post-colonial period. So kind of a more national production of knowledge. So in terms of the extent to which they broke off from 
the colonial categories. I think one major trend that happens, especially in Morocco after independence, is the promotion of Arab and Andalusi music and the suppression of Amazigh musics. So this was in line with the broader political orientation of the Moroccan nation state, which was to promote unity in the wake of colonialism, but under the guise of really an Arab and Islamic state or nation. And kind of seeing the Arab-Berber divide as a colonial invention and seeking to assimilate the Amazigh populations into this Arab state. And that's something that happened in all of the countries of North Africa, essentially. So I think one of the major musical cultural shifts that happens is Amazigh music ceases to be promoted or um, even really allowed much in the public sphere, whereas the French colonial state had been very interested in Amazigh music and had promoted it a lot, also, again, for their own purposes. So that's a major shift that happens. And so Andalusian music and Arab classical music really become the national musics of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, also because they do represent this kind of prestige and this Arab form of classical music in a way that, again, potentially echoes European classical music as an art music form and as the most prestigious form of music to be associated with the state. So that's a trend for quite a while. Uh, I mean, it's changed a lot in the last couple of decades in Morocco now that there is more of an orientation towards a more multicultural state. And then we see that in like the festival culture in Morocco, the state sponsors Amazigh music festivals and Ganawa music festivals and, and is much less oriented just towards Andalusi music. But in the initial decades, it was. But another way that I think that it also continues some of the categories in the colonial period is that some of the same or many of the same musicologists who become kind of the national musicologists of these post-colonial states worked with the colonial governments or had their starts in these colonial musicological institutions. So, for example, in Tunisia, Manubi Snoussi, he was actually the assistant to the French musicologist Rodolphe Derlanger, who helped plan the Cairo Congress of Arab Music and was a very, very prolific scholar of Arab music and Tunisian music into the 1930s when he died. So Manubi Snoussi actually was a Tunisian who got his start as Derlanger's personal assistant, helped publish his work posthumously after he died. And then we see him still kind of in the public eye in the post-colonial period. For example, in the 1960s, he ran a series of radio programs on Tunisian national radio about Tunisian music. And then we also see similar actors like uh, El Boudali Safir in Algeria, who worked for the colonial radio in Algiers and then worked for the national radio after independence. So there is a lot of continuity. And I think now some of those colonial categories are being more effectively deconstructed. But I think in the immediate post-colonial period, they're very much reproduced. Both the racial categories, the musical categories, the kind of emphasis placed on certain types of music and certain types of musical technologies and institutions, I think a lot of that is actually very continuous across the divide of independence. And I wonder if there are any, I mean, it sounds like it with these different congresses in Cairo and Fez that, that occurred even during the colonial era and then and afterwards, beyond there being a, a sort of colonial influence, was there a properly pan-Arabist thing about music at some point? And how would that show up? Would that show up in, say, shared festivals, or would it show up in the music itself, if it existed at all? 
definitely, I think we can see the Cairo Congress of Arab music as a kind of proto-pan-Arab event in the sense that it brought together Arabic-speaking countries from across the Middle East and North Africa and was trying to work together to standardize what this category of Arab music meant and also presume that it latently existed as a category. But yeah, I, I think that definitely the post-colonial orientations towards an Arab Islamic identity in North Africa and with that, that a focus on Andalusi music as the Arab classical music of North Africa was influenced by the broader pan-Arabist trends of the 1950s and 1960s. I think that it definitely was responding to and reproducing those trends and emphasizing the Arab identity of the states in the wake of colonialism as a kind of sanctioned state identity. So that also plays into, I think, why Andalusi music was so popular. At the same time, I think there is some pushback against Arab music being imported from other parts of the Arab world. You see some conversations happening around the kind of predominance of Egypt and its export of music into North Africa as being potentially corrupting or potentially like diminishing local musics and local versions of Arab music, like, you know, ubiquity of Um Kulthum and Abdul Halim Hafez and, and things like this showing up on Moroccan and Algerian radio there was a effort to, I think, then make sure that they were also playing their own music so that they wouldn't be kind of musically colonized by Egypt and the Egyptian music industry. So there was both a participation and also, I think, a reaction to the pan-Arabism of that time. Shifting gears a bit now to maybe your research methods. I was wondering what sorts of sources you use in your research, whether they are written, whether they are musical, and whether that changes anything if there's any differences between what you do and what another historian might do. I try to incorporate musical methodologies whenever I can into my work. I am trained as a historian, although I do have a bachelor's degree in music and am a musician. So it's helped a lot to be able to read music and to listen to music critically. Most of my sources are still written, but I do use musical notation and musical transcriptions as some of my source bases, and it's really helped to be able to read those and analyze those, particularly looking at the ways that musical notation is representing the music. What are the choices that the transcriber is making in writing it this way? Or when, you know, in these musicological texts, when they illustrate their points with musical examples, seeing the extent to which those line up is something that I always do because I've often found that what they are saying is happening in the music isn't always what's actually happening. I do use musical recordings when I can as well, though those can be a little harder to get your hands on, especially from the colonial period. I've done work in a couple musical archives that specialize in sound recordings. There's a really great musical archive outside of Beirut. It's called AMAR, Center for Arab Music Archiving and Research, a private archive, but they have a massive collection of early to mid 20th century Arab music recordings. And uh, also in Tunisia, the National Phonotech in Sidi Bou Said, which is actually uh, it's on the grounds of the former palace of Baron Rodolphe d'Erlanger, the guy I mentioned earlier. So it's like this beautiful spot and you can listen to music there. It's great. So listening to recordings has been useful as well. It can be a challenge because, first of all, historians don't generally engage with musical material beyond kind of the textual representations of it. Also, specifically writing for non-specialist audiences 
You have to be aware of how technical you can get, what concepts you have to explain. Will this make sense to a broader audience that's outside of musicology? It's a process I'm still kind of navigating and working with and taking inspiration from musicologists, of course. But yeah, it does massively open up your archive when you can use musical material. Do you find that musicologists have a historical bent? I think it, yeah, it definitely depends. There's obviously different approaches to musicology and different branches of it. Most of the scholars I engage with are ethnomusicologists, since those are the ones who primarily work on non-Western music. So ethnomusicologists who work in Morocco or Algeria or Tunisia. And in that sense, they often have a particular training that's more anthropological, while Traditional musicology is a slightly different type of field. So I found ethnomusicologists work to be very helpful. Sometimes they are very historical and sometimes it's much more of an ethnographic work, but just in terms of understanding the music better and also seeing how methodologically to approach music and culture, that's been very helpful. And there's a fairly rich ethnomusicological literature on North Africa, although it's still growing I do try to engage with that as much as possible, but there are very different methods. And I think that's one of the things I see myself trying to do is like bridge those two fields and kind of be in between history and ethnomusicology and add more of that historical narrative. So to finish things off, is there an artist or a song you've come across that maybe listeners of this podcast might be able to consult or listen to that you might recommend to us? I mean, I have so many. It's hard to choose. So obviously, if you're interested in Morocco, you should absolutely listen to Ganawa music. Ganawa music is huge now in Morocco, so you can hear it anywhere. But I, I would say listening to like the more traditional Ganawa music, Mahmoud Ghania or Hamid El-Kasri, who I believe is going to be at the Essaouira Ganawa Festival again this summer, is a great way to engage with, I think, Moroccan music history and also what's popular and interesting in Morocco right now. I also love Rai music. Those who are familiar, I've been getting really into it lately and listening to Khalid just all the time. So I highly recommend Khalid, Sheb Hosni, Sheb Mami, Sheikh Remiti if you want to go old school. And also I've been uh, listening a lot. I taught a class on the Sahara this past semester. So I've been listening to Desert Blues, also known as Saharan Blues or Tuareg Blues. Tanariwin are kind of the godfathers of that genre, but also Imarhan is a good younger group in that genre. And I really love listening to them because I think that in a certain way, their music represents something that transcends national borders and doesn't really have like a place that fits within some of these reified categorizations that I've been talking about. The history and musicology has always produced. Well, thank you. I think that's a great place to finish it off. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Maghreb and Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CMAT newsletter at www.cmatmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.